Our Bible text this morning is Revelation chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 13 all through the end of chapter 9. It's only 22 verses in total, so let's take the Word of God together. You can find that if you use the church Bible, you're going to find that on page 1033, 1033. So please help yourself to a Bible, um, and you can make it your own if you don't own one. All right? All right, let's hear God's word being read. Then I looked and I heard a great eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was was like the noise of many chariots and with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They were They wore breastplates of color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came from their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails for their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. The rest of of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is God's word. I'm grateful for it. I trust you are too. Um, We need... Lord's help in this time, and I invite you to pray with me. We'll ask for that as we consider this passage of Scripture together. Let's pray. Father, it's very heavy what we've just read. Torment and death. 
And as your people, Father, we want to rightly understand your word. We want to rightly apply your word. So we need to hear from you. We need to hear not just a man speaking. We need to hear what your spirit says. We need you to apply the word to our heart. And so God, would you give us that attitude of mind and heart and attentiveness that we would be ready to hear from you, to look beyond the man, to long for something from your word, to strengthen us, to enlighten us, to make us wise, to do your will in our lives. That's what we're asking for, Father. And we pray that by your spirit, you'd make that happen even now. Help us in our weakness and be strong through the weak proclamation that is before us and our weak listening that we have. For the glory of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. If, um, if you're holding, not that I've ever done this, but I've observed it, but if you're holding a, an open fire hose, so it's already been hooked up to the hydrant, the water projects outward, right? Forward. And at the same time, it, it pushes you back. And that's why you have a whole bunch of firefighters holding the thing. That's physics, right? You know, Newton's third law of motion, right? Every action, with every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We get that. It's, it's push this way, push back. Makes sense. We experience it. Now, slightly different, but in the realm of philosophy, there's what we call cause and effect. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. This is a very simple, observable reality. It's the relationship between actions or events such that one or more are the result of other or others. So something had to happen for this thing to happen. Cause, effect. The open fire hose quenches the fire. The open fire hose is the cause, quenches the fire, effect. So it's observable and logical. And they're true because that's how God designed the universe. And I would say this as well. I would say that these are foundational a priori, beforehand truths that are tr transcendent realities, that, that they existed before and function as a foundation for how God created everything. God speaks, that's the cause creation comes into existence. That's the effect. Now, you might be wondering, what is he talking about this morning? How does this have to do with anything in our text? And it's this. Sin, that's a cause. It brings an effect. That's judgment. Sin, an evil action, exerts an equal and opposite reaction of judgment because it must. It is by design. That's the lens. That's the lens through which I'm seeing this passage of Scripture. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that God is not actively involved, that somehow he just created the universe, wound it up, and walked away to have a cup of tea. It's not that way. That would be wrong. Indeed, the Bible actually reveals that God is intricately involved in both delaying or speeding judgment or showing grace and mercy. But like the inviolable laws of motion, justice must happen. And it's built into the system. So I want to walk through what John is being shown here. And I'll explain what I mean. I'll give you my headings along the way. I have three. But the first thing I want you to see from the text this morning is that there's an announcement of spiritual judgment. Announcing spiritual judgment. And I think you understand this. We all do. And I think we're grateful for this. In our physical world, 
a person cannot be judged for evil thoughts, only evil deeds, right? So a person could have the vilest imagination. They could have the most murderous desires, right? But if that individual never speaks or acts on it, there is no crime. That's true in the physical world, and I think it's good and right. But God sees the heart. And the effect is that he judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, we can see that it is also true that thoughts and intentions often do manifest themselves in evil acts. But God judges the heart, the intentions of the heart. And I think that's what's in view in our text here. And I'll show you how in a moment. This idea, or, or sorry, there's an idea that transcends biblical revelation, and I think we all agree with this, and this is in most religions, there is a reality beyond what is physical. So we know there's physical suffering. You cut your finger, you bleed, you get cancer, and you, you, you have pain. Your heart fails, and you need help, right? We, we get that there's physical suffering, but there's also spiritual suffering. There is physical judgment, but there is no less uh, the reality that there is also spiritual judgment. And that's what's in view here. So the first four trumpets we dealt with last week, they were judgments of the unrepentant. Those judgments were mediated metaphorically through physical calamities. God is judging those who dwell on the earth. So as a result, the trees and grass are burned up and they experience that. Sea creatures are killed, poisoned water, sun is darkened, etc. Those are physical judgments. Eight, chapter 8, verse 13, where we began this morning, it continues now with a different kind of judgment. A judgment that's mediated through spiritual realities. Then I looked, verse 13, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So he's attaching woe to each of the following three trumpets. And that word woe is just another way of saying judgment, 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 judgment. And those three trumpets, as I said, are those woes. And we're going to look at just two of those woes this morning. But we have to ask the question, to what? About what? In response to what are these woes, these judgments pertaining? You look back, you look down in your Bibles to chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. This is after the fifth and sixth trumpet. It is written here. They, the people dwelling on the earth, those unbelievers, the ones who've rejected Christ, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot hear, see, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, I'm saying that these are, this is a spiritual judgment on spiritual sins. Some of these, of course, are physical acts, right? Murder, work of their hands, murder, theft, sexual immorality, they're worked out. But I take it that these Physical acts are the external manifestation of an idolatrous and demon-worshipping heart. What I'm saying here, what I believe John is telling us, what, he, what is being revealed to him is that spiritual sins have spiritual consequences. Now, the idea that God would judge the heart, that's shocking to many. And 
perhaps some of you who listen to podcasts, there's a, a popular uh, conservative commentator. He's also a religious Jew. He insists, and he uses the Torah, the, the Old Testament, he insists that God only judges our deeds, not our thoughts. And he vehemently disagrees with Jesus' teaching about lust in Matthew 5.28. You're familiar with that. You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you so much as have lust in your heart, you're there. And a lot of people think, well, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter the thoughts that go in my mind. It doesn't matter where my affections are. It just matters what I do. No. God cares about the heart. So what is being revealed here to John is that the form, the form of judgment is this, is that the consequence of doing evil itself is the evildoer being consumed by evil. So the consequence of doing evil is that the one who does evil is consumed by the evil itself. We'll see this. The satanic and demonic forces that are attacking they're attacking those who dwell on the earth. They're satanic forces. And this is counterintuitive. I think you'd agree. You see, if Satan is the adversary, if he's at war with God and his, God's people, then you'd think he'd, he'd leave alone the ones that are his own, the ones whose heart he's already captured. So if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, screw tape letters, the devil, screw tape. He's coaching his nephew, this nephew demon, Wormwood, on how to effectively tempt the patient, if you read the book. So, like he's going after the believer or the one who's going to be a believer. And what John is being shown here is, is actually that the very corrupting and destroying of nature of sin falls on those who embrace it. And so I want you to note this. This is so important. I believe that the judgment from the Lord, and I was, <laughs> I was, uh, I was going to uh, Lincoln this past week with Davey. We went to a seminar. Davy Lee of, of Center Baptist. And I was, I was sharing with him how Revelation, I mean, we're stuck in this zone. There's so much judgment. I want, I want to preach some good news. Well, there, I will. I will. But it's just loaded with judgment, right? And, and we might have this view that God is all about judgment. Judgment matters to God. And I don't think I'm trying to twist the scripture. I, I think we're supposed to understand something here that the judgment from the Lord is not so much God devising ways to punish. Now, I do acknowledge God ordains all things, but the punishment is not God thinking, hmm, what needs to happen as a result of that sin so I can judge it? I don't think that's what's going on. I think what happens is that God takes the restraints off of evil so that the unrighteous suffer because he simply said, fine, have at it. And they're ultimately destroyed by it. Now, all, spirit, all rebellion against God is spiritual. And the woes, I believe, that follow, these are the spiritual consequences of unrepentant sin. Now, the Bible tells us, of course, that all have sinned. And that includes all of us, Romans 3.23. And so in some sense, all of us are guilty at some of these sins. So it may be, it's the ones listed, okay? It may be that, You've never bowed to an idol of gold or silver, but no doubt you've put more confidence in your gold or silver or dollars at times than God. It's probably happened. And it may be that you've never murdered anyone, but according to Jesus, 
the Sermon on the Mount, according to Jesus, that hateful thought, that's that same sinful intent without execution. And it may be that you've never been unfaithful to your wife or husband, but no doubt you have entertained a lustful thought. And you know what Jesus says about that. However, these woes, these judgments, they are because, chapter 9, verse 20, they did not repent of these things. So here, we must understand, judgment here is for the unrepentant. It's for the unrepentant. Jesus speaking in his day, this is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. He was speaking about responding to some current events. There were the horrific deaths of people through accident and, and the abuse of power of authorities. Jesus said this about both scenarios. Um, some who's, who were killed and their blood was mixed with the temple sacrifice. Others were building a tower and it just collapsed on them. And they died. And Jesus says, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. That's really bad news for the unrepentant. But it's great news for the repentant. Absolutely wonderful news. So, what's repentance? I want to talk about that a little bit. So this judgment, these woes are falling upon the unrepentant. We want to understand rightly what repentance is. So, it's more than just feeling bad for doing and thinking bad things, right? It's more than that. Because you can feel bad for doing bad things because it leads to bad temporal consequences. For example, if you steal or murder, you'll be in prison. That's unpleasant. And you might feel bad. Well, I wish I didn't get caught. But you know, when you have that attitude, something important, very important, is missing. And Paul in 2 Corinthians describes that kind of regret. He says, this is 2 Corinthians 7, 10, the second part of, of the verse. Worldly grief produces death. I feel bad. I get caught. I feel bad because you see me in a bad light. I feel bad because now I've lost some freedom. I, I feel bad. See, what's missing in that, of course, is the acknowledgement of our own sinful nature. It's a missing, what's missing in that is a, an understanding of who the ultimate one we have offended is. And the first part of that verse in 2 Corinthians says this, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And that's beautiful. The vilest of sinners who come in repentance, true heart repentance before the Lord, leads to salvation without regret for what you've done, without regret. That doesn't mean we, we think well of the things in the past, but it's like you're looking forward to the cross and all of that is covered. There's, there's no more consequence. There's no more eternal consequence. And, and that repentance, that's what God wants from us. See, this judgment is falling upon the unrepentant, so we must rightly think about what repentance looks like. That's what God wants from us. King David, he captured the, the true heart of repentance. Now, you know what he did. The story is well known, right? He got a little smug in his power. His troops are out fighting a battle one day. He looks over his wall. There's a beautiful woman bathing. And his mind full of lustful thoughts. 
Someone sends for her. He takes her. Now, that woman, Bathsheba, happened to be the wife of one of his best generals, Uriah. Well, he gets her pregnant. Make a long story short, he, he gets Uriah to come in, try to get him drunk, so that he goes back to see his wife so he can hide the, hide the crime. It doesn't work. Uriah is an honorable man. I'm, I'm not going to go home to my wife. The rest of the troops are on the front lines. I'll just sleep in the court. Well, he ends up telling another general, look, push the battle forward and, and everybody just back away from him and let him be killed. And that's what happened. Now, horrific crime. And yet, for that horrible act of immorality and murder, he repented. And when he was confronted, Psalm 51 is this beautiful psalm expressing his heart before God, right? He says this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. That doesn't mean he didn't sin against Bathsheba or Uriah. But he understands supremely he has sinned before God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So he, he understands above all that his sin is against God. And then David in this psalm, he asks God to do something that is absolutely impossible for him to do on his own. He understands the corruption in him, and he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. That's how repentance works. God, I see this darkness in me. I can't fix me. I can't willpower my way out of this sin. I need something supernatural here. I need you to create. Like you spoke the universe into existence, I want you to speak into existence a pure heart because I can't manufacture that. That's that desperation to say, God, I need you. So let me ask you, knowing that judgment falls on the unrepentant, have you truly repented of your sin before God? That is an absolutely vital question. There's a lot of people that kind of exist in the religious world, functioning in a morally respectable way, keeping up good appearances in the local church, working well in their communities. But they've never really been face down in their hearts before the Lord saying, I can do nothing to make myself clean. I need something beyond myself. And friend, if you have not done so, repent of your sin, turn to Christ. Well, let me get to the judgments now. So those woes were announced. They're judgments on the unrepentant for spiritual sins and they're spiritual judgments. What's the nature of those? So the first, the first one, I think, with the fifth, the fifth trumpet is hopelessness. Hopelessness. Now, I'm sure we've all had occasions to be momentarily and circumstantially hopeless, right? Maybe you felt lost. Lost in the woods, like I don't know where to turn. You've gone in circles. You've gone off the trail. Or, or maybe you felt betrayed by a friend. You, you did everything right, but, but you, it was just like, how did that happen? Or maybe you were passed over for promotion. Or maybe you did everything you could possibly know to do, but you still couldn't repair the relationship. 
So those momentary and temporal feelings, just imagine that multiplied to the place where it is an absolute and unquenchable despair. That's a judgment. And that's the fifth trumpet. Now, again, I, I take what follows in, in the text here, as we see the fifth trumpet sounded, I take what follows. These are metaphorical descriptions of spiritual realities that bring physical suffering. And so often you see John uses the phrase, something like, in appearance of, something like, like, like. There's so many of those words. So I take it that these are not creatures or events in reality, but simply symbolic descriptions communicating some truth through imagery. So just to be clear, and not many hold this anymore, but I don't think John was speaking about helicopters. I, I'm, that's where I am on this, okay? So the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and John saw in his vision a star fallen from heaven to earth. Now I take it here that this is Satan, because it resembles what Jesus said in Luke 10.18, when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Maybe describing he was an angel of light, and, and he was deposed from his place for his arrogance before God. I don't know, whatever the history is of how Satan, as an enemy of God, as the adversary came to be. But he's fallen to earth. And Satan was given this key to the bottomless pit. That's chapter 9, verse 1. Now understand this. He can only do what God allows. He's fallen from heaven. But he is given the key to the bottomless pit. He doesn't own it. He's given, okay, you can have it. And what does he do with it? Well, we'll see that in a moment. But this is, I think, illustrative of, of the very nature of evil. Right? It ultimately inflicts pain on those who do it. Now, Chapter 9, verse 2 begins a series of descriptions after this shaft is opened. So we first see the smoke like smoke from a great furnace bringing darkness. Then emerging out of that smoke, something like locusts who are given power like that of scorpions, 9.3. Now, I take it here it's a clear allusion to, to the plague of locusts in Exodus chapter 10, the, the punishment and judgment that was inflicted upon Egypt. And, and so, like I've said in weeks past, so many, of the, so many things that we see here in Revelation are allusions, allusions to Old Testament prophetic writings or, or the plagues in Egypt or, or Joel, Ezekiel. It's this, in fact, in this section, it's the judgment language of Joel, chapter 1 and 2. And then chapter 9, 7 through 11, it describes this swarm of demonic locusts. And he describes them like horses prepared for battle. They had these crowns of gold, strangely, human faces, hair like a woman, teeth like a lion, breastplates of iron, the noise of them is like the, the sound of many horses and chariots charging into battle. They have these tails that are like scorpions, and they're ruled, unlike, unlike locusts in the real world. In this vision, these locust demon things are ruled by a demonic king called Abaddon. That's Hebrew, Apollyon, and Greek, and that just simply means destruction. So this thing, this demon king is uh, amassing these troops to bring destruction. Now, unlike, unlike the locusts that ravaged the land of Egypt, these are told that they may not, may not harm grass. They may not harm plants and trees. What their job is only to torment those who dwell on the earth. And again, those who dwell on the earth, those who, are, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's back in chapter 7. And they're permitted to do so only for 
five months. It's probably symbolic, but I think it's relating to the span of time that a typical swarm of locusts would last before they died out. Now, each element in this fantastic description, each element is symbolic. And it's hard to know what they all represent, but I think overarching, fire implies judgment. Smoke brings darkness, a kind of a blindness, deception, spiritual darkness. Crowns, they indicate some measure of authority. The faces, like a human with a woman's hair, I think there's a, a deceptive beauty in this. But they have teeth like a lion to terrify, and they ultimately sting with those scorpion tails. And it isn't just one. Now, I've never seen a scorpion in person, but the look of them in pictures terrifies me. Now, can you imagine an entire army of them? Organized to torment. And what this does, it brings this kind of existential torment from which there is no relief. Imagine a kind of spiritual suffering so great that death would be preferable, yet unattainable. Now, I can't imagine that. And I think that that longing for death as a relief relief that never shows up, I think that prefigures something of the experience of those who will be cast into the lake of fire, the final judgment, a place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth where the flame is never quenched, where the worm does not die. But this fifth Trumpet, that's not that final judgment, but it is the experience of many, many who have been confronted with the gospel of Christ and have rejected it, a spiritual torment. I think what this does, this judgment does, is it, it reveals the futility of sin. It reveals the hopelessness of rebellion against God. And I think this is true because on the other side of this, the corollary, where there is obedience to God's commands, and I would say that through faith in Christ, those commands, it says in the Bible, and I would say this experientially too, those commands of God are not burdensome, it says in 1 John 5, 3. They're not burdensome. They're not hard. But they are in and of themselves a reward. So if obedience to God's commands has a built-in reward, disobedience to God's commands has a built-in consequence of the opposite, a lack of joy, a heaviness, a hopelessness. Settled rebellion against God is a judgment because, it was, because of what it does to people. And I want you to listen this has been said before. This is what the Lord told the Israelites regarding their own anticipated future rebellion. Deuteronomy 28. Listen to these words. And this is after a season when they've been embroiled in, in disobedience and idolatry. He tells them through Moses, You shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. 
but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you, sh you shall say, if only it were evening, and at the evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the question, does sin really satisfy is it a fulfilling life for the one who lies, cheats, and steals? Does that one really rest easily at night? Does the murderer say in his heart, Oh, I can't wait to do that again. Does the one who idolizes fame, money, pleasure, does that one ever think, You know, this is everything I ever wanted. Does the adulterer say, my life is better now. It's so obvious to me that many, and, and certainly not all, but many, many who suffer from profound loneliness, many who suffer in broken relationships, experience alienation and ostracization, many, not all, many are in those circumstances because of pride, because of selfishness, because of an unwillingness to confess their own sin or forgive others. And I know you can think of people right now whose lives have been torn apart because they did not forgive. Miles, I've read, I've read this. Uh, I understand that there's mental illness, there's profound depression and schizophrenia whose, whose causes are chemical, physiological. But I wonder, I wonder, and I'm no expert in these things, but I wonder if some who have suffered in such a way do so because they have accommodated the, to themselves sinful and distorted patterns of thinking along with a rejection of God's grace and they so as a result spend their days in torment of their own decisions seeking help but never finding relief. And I know some here suffer from depression. I'm not saying all of it, but certainly, certainly some of what we see is the result of accommodating sinful thoughts, accommodating sinful ideas and, and building them into their lives. People who, have, who do not find relief because they continue to reject the gospel. And the result, hopelessness, futility, Pointless existence. That's sin's reward. But, but for all who are sealed, for those of us whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, look back at 7.14. For those of us who've truly understood in the first place our, our moral poverty, who have understood our powerlessness to do what is right, our inability to find our own way to God, for those of us who've looked to Christ, crucified for our sin and raised to life, for those of us who have trusted him. We have hope for eternity, which gives us this enduring hope even now. It's not just for the, for the future, but even now we can have hope. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 1 through 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings 
knowing, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what we have in Christ. Hope. Consequence of rebelling against God is hopelessness and futility. And the reward, the reward for trusting in the gospel, trusting in Christ, is eternal hope that cannot be taken away. We get it. Not everything's right. We do suffer. But we can endure. And there is hope. Again, another verse. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We do not fully possess this. We don't have it in our hands. We don't have eternal, our, our, the full effect of our eternal salvation, but we know it's coming. And it doesn't disappoint. Well, verse 12, the first woe, the first judgment has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. We'll just deal with one more this, this morning. Now, whereas the fifth trumpet I, I would take is a living torment as a result of rebellion, spiritual, spiritual consequence for spiritual sins. The sixth trumpet reveals the deceptiveness of sin leading to death, leading to death. So my third point, deceived to death. Now, you're likely familiar with that proverbial frog in the kettle. You've, you've heard this, right? So if you drop a frog into a, a you know, pot of boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put that frog in cold water and slowly raise the heat, you'll be munching on frog legs in about 20 minutes, if you like that sort of thing. I'm not a fan. No, I've never had them. So the frog in the kettle, accommodated to the heat, like, this is fine, this is great. And then, dead. In the sixth trumpet announcement, it comes from the altar. And, and the voice of God, or the voice of the Lamb, it tells the sixth angel then to release the four angels. These are messengers. So these angels, they're messengers, that's the meaning of angel, but they're not, they're, not a, they're not God's messengers, they're demonic. Because they had been restrained. God doesn't have to restrain his own angels. So these, these are demonic messengers. And they, we're told they're bound... In this, this imagery here, they're bound at the great Euphrates. What's that? Well, this is symbolic of the fact. If you look back in Israel's history, the enemies that would pounce on, on Israel often came from that region around the Euphrates. They were armies, conquering armies. So we have this picture now of a conquering army ready to destroy. And so from between the four horns of the altar, that represents the power of God, the announcement goes out to release them release their demonic power to destroy one-third of mankind. And here's the means by which they destroy. Again, he sees this in his vision. Mounted troops, horses with riders, prepared specifically for the task. 200 million of them. This is a massive force. 917, then he describes them. Again, it's metaphorical language, so they're not tanks. Breastplates of, of the color of fire, sapphire, and sulfur. Heads of horses like a lion. They snort out fire and smoke and sulfur. And then also their tails are like serpents with heads on them. 
Now, fire, smoke, and sulfur, they're, they're symbolic of God's judgment. All you have to do is look back at, at Genesis 19.24. That's what fell on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's judgment on them, fire, smoke, and sulfur. Now, again, it's important to note, and I'm stressing this, that the destruction of evil people is carried out by evil forces when they are released, when they're unrestrained. And again, this reveals that God does not have to devise ways to destroy the wicked. He simply removes the restraint. And the deceptiveness of sin ultimately leads to death. The frog says to the other frogs, jump in. The water's great. Eventually, they're unknowingly just boiled to death. Now, we can see so many examples of this in our own generation. See the news. Those Some in murderous gangs, they suffer the same fate as they exact on others. They are murderers and they end up being murdered. Drug dealers, some of them overdose on the very same narcotics that they've peddled on the streets. The chronic abuser may be killed by his wife. The sexually immoral died from AIDS. Now, you hear about these things in the news, too, and this is more recent stuff. I mean, it's crazy what's going on in Russia, but you you hear about the corrupt politicians, the powerful oligarchs. What's happening? That some of them are taking out other corrupt oligarchs and powerful politicians, and we hear stories. Well, he just happened to fall out of a building. Oh, he ate something and died. They're killing their own people. The very evil structures are consuming their own. Back in this nation, and maybe in other parts of the world, too, but cultural elites who have indulged, and you know what I'm talking about in the news, indulged in sexual crimes, depraved things, were killed by the very same power structures that aided and abetted their depravity. They're so deceived by their sin that it leads to death. And this surely is what the sage had in mind when he wrote in Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 26. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I think this is the right way. Uh, yeah, th- this, this looks good. Th- this, this will produce results in the short term. Leads to death. Well, in chapter 9, verse 18, John explains, by these three plagues, a third of man thi- mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. One third. And what that means is that Two-thirds of mankind will continue in their rebellion, unrepentant. And what this does, brothers and sisters in Christ, what this does is explains to us why it appears that some evil people may appear that they even prosper. The psalmist noted this. Psalm 73. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But like the psalmist, we... You've got to be careful not to envy them. If you sell your soul to the devil, you may pay the price in this life, but you absolutely certainly will in the next. But, and I want good news, that is not the fate of the repentant. That is not the fate of those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. And I trust that is all of you this morning, that you've been set apart and marked By God, the seal of the Holy Spirit. 
So if you're in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit took the blinders away and revealed to you the deceptiveness of sin. And your security was assured by Jesus at the cross that the one who was the word of God, who was, in, who was in the beginning with God, the word who became flesh, who was full of grace and truth, Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. Rejecting the gospel, remaining unrepentant brings certain torment and possible death. And it's been this way since the beginning of time. The way of sin is the way of death. Unrepentant sin, the way of unrepentant sin is the way of death because it deceives, it lies to you that indulging your flesh, doing what you want is the way to fulfillment. But what is clear from John's vision God has and will judge the unrepentant in this life through physical calamity and by removing the restraint from evil so that it consumes those who indulge in it. The way of life, let me remind you again, is repentance. And I've said it, but I'll say it again. Repentance is only possible because of Jesus. He died to break that stranglehold of sin on us by taking it to the grave. That's why he offered up his life. And in truth, he revealed the futility of sin. And in his body crucified, he provided the way to the Father. And in his resurrection, he guaranteed eternal life for all who believe. And I trust that that's you this morning. If it is not yet Oh, let me plead with you. Put your faith in Christ. Repent of your sin. So how do you know? How do you know that you are sealed? How do you know you belong to the Lord? How do you know that you're marked for salvation? How do you know if you're truly repentant? There's a simple test that Jesus provided. Jesus said this. If, that's conditional, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what's the corollary? If you don't, you're not. Stay the positive. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And here it is. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope you know this this morning. Freedom is joy. Freedom is life. And this is yours in Christ alone. And if you love his word, you have Christ. So, repent of your sin and avoid the judgment of God the very fact that sin will ultimately consume those who indulge in it. It's a warning, but it's also good news for all of us who are in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you give us your word. I, I pray that every Sunday, but I am immensely grateful. And even in challenging passages like this where there's so much judgment, 
It sends a shudder up our spine. We don't want to be numbered among those who do not have the mark of God on our foreheads. We do not want to be numbered among those who are unrepentant. So, Father, I pray for any with an earshot of this watching in this room this morning that you would bring that conviction that would lead to repentance and trust in Christ. Lord, we know that only your Spirit can do this. And for all of us, Father, who are already in Christ, who, who know that we are protected for that day of salvation, would you give us endurance? Help us not to be tempted by the apparent success of those who do evil and the prosperity of those who reject you. But Father, help us to hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering, that Christ himself may be glorified and that we may hold on to the eternal hope that we have in him. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.